Welcome to Volume 8 of How Right You Are, Jeeves. Chapter 15 With self-all eagerness and enthusiasm for the work in hand, straining at the leash, as you might say, and full of the will to win, it came as a bit of a damper when I found on the following afternoon that Jeeves didn't think highly of Operation Upjohn. I told him about it just before starting out for the tryst, feeling that it would be helpful to have his moral support, and was stunned to see that his manner was austere and even puff-faced. He was giving me a description at the time of how it felt to act as judge at a seaside bathing bells contest, and it was with regret that I was compelled to break into this, for he had been holding me spellbound. I'm sorry, Jeeves, I said, consulting my watch, but I shall have to be dashing off. Urgent appointment. You must tell me the rest later. At any time that suits you, sir. Are you doing anything for the next half hour or so? No, sir. Not planning to curl up in some shady nook with a cigarette and spinoza? No, sir. Then I strongly advise you to come down to the lake and witness a human drama. And in a few brief words, I outlined the program and the events which had led up to it. He listened attentively and raised his left eyebrow a fraction of an inch. Was this Miss Wickham's idea, sir? No, I agree it sounds like one of hers, but actually it was Sir Roderick Glossop who suggested it. By the way, you were probably surprised to find him butling here. It did occasion me a momentary astonishment, but Sir Roderick explained the circumstances. Fearing that if he didn't let you in on it, you might unmask him in front of Mrs. Cream. No doubt, sir. He would naturally wish to take all precautions. I gathered from his remarks that he has not yet reached a definite conclusion regarding the mental condition of Mr. Cream. No, he's still observing. Well, as I say, it was from his fertile bean that the idea sprang. What do you think of it? Ill-advised, sir, in my opinion. I was amazed. I could hardly be my E. Ill-advised? Yes, sir. But it worked without a hitch in the case of Bertha Simmons, George Lanchester and old Mr. Simmons. Very possibly, sir. Then why this defeatist attitude? It is merely a feeling, sir, due probably to my preference for finesse. I mistrust these elaborate schemes. One cannot depend on them. As the poet Burns says, the best laid plans of mice and men ganged aft agly. Scotch, isn't it that word? Yes, sir. I thought as much. The gang told the story. Why does Scotsman say gang? I have no information, sir. They have not confided in me. I was getting a bit peeved by now, not at all liking the sniffiness of his manner. I'd expected him to speed me on my way with words of encouragement and uplift, not to go trying to blunt the keen edge of my zest like this. I was rather in the position of a child who runs to his mother hoping for approval and endorsement of something he's done and is awarded instead a brusque kick in the pants. It was with a good deal of warmth that I came back at him. So you think the poet Burns would look askance at this enterprise of ours, do you? Well, you can tell him from me he's an ass. We've thought the thing out to the last detail. Miss Wickham asks Mr. Upjohn to come for a stroll with her. She leads him to the lake. I am standing on the brink, ostensibly taking a look at the fishes, playing amongst the reeds. Kipper, ready at the last button, is behind a neighboring tree. On the cue, oh, look, from Miss Wickham, accompanied by business of pointing with girlish excitement at something in the water, up John bends over to peer. I push, Kipper dives in, and there we are. Nothing could possibly go wrong. Just as you say, sir, but I still have that feeling. The blood of the Worcesters is hot, 
and I was about to tell him in set terms what I thought of his bally feeling when I suddenly spotted what it was that was making him grab the act. The green-eyed monster had bitten him. He was miffed because he wasn't the brains behind this binge, the blueprints for it having been laid down by a rival. Even great men have their weaknesses. So I held back the acid crack I might have made and went off with a mere, Oh, yeah? No sense in twisting the knife in the wound, I mean. All the same, I remained a bit hot under the collar, because when you're all strung up and tense and all that, the last thing you want is people upsetting you by ringing in the poet Burns. I hadn't told him, but our plans had already nearly been wrecked at the outset by the unfortunate circumstance of Upjohn while in the metropolis having shaved his mustache, this causing Kipper to come within a toucher of losing his nerve and calling the whole thing off. The sight of that bare expanse or step of flesh beneath the nose, he said, did something to him, bringing back the days when he had so often found his blood turning to ice on beholding it. It had required quite a series of pep talks to revive his manly spirits. However, there was good stuff in the lad, and though for a while the temperature of his feet had dropped sharply, threatening to reduce him to the status of non-cooperative cat in the yardage, at 3.30 Greenwich Mean Time he was at his post behind the selected tree, resolved to do his bit. He poked his head round the tree as I arrived, and when I waved a cheery hand at him, waved a cheery hand back at me. Though I only caught a glimpse of him, I could see his upper lip was stiff. There being no signs as yet of the female star and her companion, I deduced that I was a bit on the early side. I lit a cigarette and stood awaiting their entrance, and was pleased to note that conditions could scarcely have been better for the coming water feet. Too often on an English summer day you find the sun going behind the clouds and a nippy wind springing up from the northeast, but this afternoon was one of those still, sultry afternoons when the slightest movement brings the persp and bees to the brow, an afternoon in short when it would be a positive pleasure to be shoved into a lake. Most refreshing, Upjohn would say to himself as the cool water played about his limbs. I was standing there running over the stage directions in my mind to see that I had got it all clear when I beheld Wilbert Cream approaching, the dog Poppet curvetting about his ankles. Upon seeing me, the hound rushed forward with uncouth cries, as was his wont. But, upon heaving alongside and getting a whiff of Worcester Number 5, calmed down, and I was at liberty to attend to Wilbert, who, I could see, desired speech with me. He was looking, I noticed, fairly green about the gills, and he conveyed the same suggestion of having just swallowed a bad oyster which I had observed in Kipper on his arrival at Brinkley. It was plain that the loss of Phyllis Mills, goofy though she unquestionably was, had hit him a shrewd wallop, and I presumed that he was coming to me for sympathy and heart balm, which I would have been only too pleased to dish out. I hoped, of course, that he would make it crisp and remove himself at an early date, for when the moment came for the balloon to go up, I didn't want to be hampered by an audience. When you're pushing someone into a lake, nothing embarrasses you more than having the front seats filled with goggling spectators. It was not, however, on the subject of Phyllis that he proceeded to touch. Oh, Worcester, he said. I was talking to my mother a night or two ago. Oh, yes, I said with a slight wave of the hand intended to indicate that if he liked to talk to his mother anywhere, all over the house he had my approval. She tells me you're interested in mice. I didn't like the trend the conversation was taking, but I preserved my aplomb. Why, yes, fairly interested. She says she found you trying to catch one in my bedroom? Yes, that's right. Good of you to bother. Not at all. Always a pleasure. She says you seem to be making a very thorough search of my room. Oh, well, you know, when one sets one's hand to the plow. 
You didn't find a mouse. No, no mouse, sorry. I wonder if any chance you happen to find an 18th century cow creamer. Eh? Silver, jug-shaped like a cow. No, why? Was it on the floor somewhere? No, it was in a drawer of the bureau. Ah, then I would have missed it. You certainly miss it now. It's gone. Gone? Yes, gone. You mean disappeared, as it were? I do. Strange. Yeah, very strange. Yes, does seem extremely strange, doesn't it? It's spoken with all the old Worcester coolness, and I doubt if a casual observer would have detected that Bertram was not at his ease. But I can assure my public that he wasn't by a wide margin. My heart had leaped in the manner popularized by Kipper Herring and Scarface McCall, crashing against my front teeth with a thud which must have been audible in Market Snosbury. A far less astute man would have been able to divine what had happened. Not knowing the score, owing to having missed the latest stop-press news and looking on the cow creamer purely in the light of a bit of swag collected by Wilbert in the course of his larcenous career, Pop Glossop, all zeal, had embarked on the search he had planned to make. An intuition developed by years of Hunt the Slipper had led him to the right spot. Too late, I regretted sorely that, concentrating so intensely on Operation Upjohn, I had failed to place the facts before him. Had he but known, summed it up. I was going to ask you, said Wilbert, if you think I should inform Mrs. Travers. The cigarette I was smoking was fortunately one of the kind that make you nonchalant. So it was nonchalantly, or fairly nonchalantly, I was able to reply. Oh, I wouldn't do that. Why not? Might upset her. You consider her a sensitive plant? Oh, very. Rugged exterior, of course, but you can't go by that. No, I'd just wait a while, if I were you. I expect it'll turn out that the thing's somewhere you put it, but didn't think you'd put it. I mean, you often put a thing somewhere and think you've put it somewhere else, and then find out you didn't put it somewhere else, but put it somewhere. I don't know if you follow me. I don't. What I mean is just stick around and you'll probably find the thing. You think it'll return? I do. Like a homing pigeon. Yes, that's the idea. Oh, really? Said Wilbert, and turned away to greet Bobby and Upjohn, who had just arrived on the boathouse landing stage. I had found his manner a little peculiar, particularly that last, Oh, but I was glad that there was no lurking suspicion in his mind that I had taken the Bali thing. He might so easily have got the idea that Uncle Tom, regretting having parted with his ewe lamb and employed me to recover it privily, this being the sort of thing I believe the collectors frequently do. Nonetheless, I was still much shaken, and I made a mental note to tell Roddy Glossop to slip it back among his effects at the earliest possible moment. I shifted over to where Bobby and Upjohn were standing, and, though up and doing with a heart for any fate, couldn't help getting that feeling you get at times like this of having swallowed a double portion of butterflies. My emotions were somewhat similar to those I had experienced when I first sang the Yeoman's Wedding Song. In public, I mean. For, of course, I had long been singing it in my bath. Hello, Bobby, I said. Hello, Bertie, she said. Hello, Upjohn, I said. The correct response to this would have been hello, Worcester, but he blew his lines and merely made a noise like a wolf with his big toe caught in a trap. Seemed a bit restive, I thought, as if wishing he were elsewhere. Bobby was all girlish animation. I've been telling Mr. Upjohn about that big fish we saw on the lake yesterday, Bertie. Oh, yes, the big fish. It was a whopper, wasn't it? 
Oh, yes, very well developed. I brought him down here to show it to him. Quite right, you'll enjoy the big fish, Apchon. I'd been perfectly correct in supposing him to be restive. He did his wolf impersonation once more. I shall do nothing of the sort. He said, and you couldn't find a better word than testily to describe the way he spoke. It is most inconvenient for me to be away from the house at this time. I am expecting a telephone call from my lawyer. Oh, I wouldn't bother about telephone calls from lawyers, I said heartily. These legal birds never say anything worth listening to. Just gab, gab, gab. You'll never forgive yourself if you miss the big fish. You were saying, Upjohn? I broke off courteously, for he had spoken. I was saying, Mr. Worcester, that both you and Miss Wickham are laboring under a singular delusion in supposing that I am interested in fish, whether large or small. I ought never to have left the house, and I shall return there now at once. Oh, don't go yet, I said. Wait for the big fish, said Bobby. Bound to be along shortly, I said. Any moment now, said Bobby. Her eyes met mine, and I read in them the message she was trying to convey, viz, that the time had come to act. There is a tide in the affairs of men which, taken at the flood, leads on to fortune. Not my own, Jeeves. She bent over and pointed an eager finger. Oh, look, she cried. This, as I had explained to Jeeves, should have been the cue for Upjohn to bend over too, thus making it a simple task for me to do my stuff. But he didn't bend over an inch. And why? Because at this moment that goof Phyllis, suddenly appearing in our midst, said, Daddy, dear, you're wanted on the telephone. Upon which, standing not on the order of his going, Upjohn was off as if propelled from a gun. He couldn't have moved quicker if he had been the dachshund poppet, who at this juncture was running around in circles, trying, if I read his thoughts aright, to work off the rather heavy lunch he had earlier eaten in the afternoon. One began to see what the poet Burns had meant. I don't know anything that more promptly gums up a dramatic sequence than the sudden and unexpected exit of an important member of the cast at a crucial point in the proceedings. I was reminded of the time when we did Charlie's Aunt at the Margaret Snosbury Town Hall in aid of the local church organ fund. And halfway through the second act, just when we were all giving our best, Casmeet Potter Pierbright, who was playing Lord Fancourt Babberley, left the stage abruptly to attend an unforeseen nosebleed. As far as Bobby and I were concerned, silence reigned, this novel twist in the scenario having wiped speech from our lips, as the expression is. But Phyllis continued vocally, I found this darling pussycat in the garden. She said, and for the first time I observed that she was bearing Augustus in her arms. He was looking a bit disgruntled, and one could readily see why. He wanted to catch up with his sleep and was being kept awake by the endearments she was murmuring in his ear. She lowered him to the ground. I brought him here to talk to Poppet. Poppet loves cats, don't you, Angel? Come and say how do you do to the sweet pussykins, darling. I shot a quick look at Wilbert Cream to see how he was reacting to this. It was a sort of observation that might have quenched the spark of love in his bosom, for nothing tends to cool the human heart more swiftly than baby talk. But, far from being revolted, he was gazing yearningly at her as if her words were music to his ears. How very odd, I felt. And I was just saying to myself that you could never tell when I became aware of a certain liveliness in my immediate vicinity. At the moment when Augustus touched ground, and curling himself into a ball fell into a light doze, Poppet had completed his tenth lap and was preparing to start on his eleventh. 
Seeing Augustus, he halted in mid-stride, smiled broadly, turned his ears inside out, stuck his tail straight up at right angles to the parent body, and bounded forward, barking merrily. I could have told the silly ass his attitude was all wrong. Roused from slumber, the most easy-going cat is apt to wake up cross. Already Augustus had had much to endure from Phyllis, who had doubtless jerked him out of dreamland when scooping him up in the garden, and all this noise and heartiness breaking out just as he had dropped off again put the lid on his sullen mood. He spat peevishly. There was a sharp yelp, and something long and brown came shooting between my legs, precipitating itself and me into the depths. The water closed about me, and for an instant I knew no more. When I rose to the surface, I found that Poppet and I were not the only bathers. We had been joined by Wilbert Cream, who had dived in, seized the hound by the scruff of the neck, and was towing him at a brisk pace to the shore. And by one of those odd coincidences, I was, at this moment, seized by the scruff of the neck myself. It's all right, Mr. Upjohn. Keep quite cool. Keep quite... What the hell are you doing here, Bertie? Said Kipper, for it was he. I may have been wrong, but it all seemed to me that he spoke petulantly. I expelled a pint or two of H2O. You might well ask, I said, moodily detaching a water beetle from my hair. I don't know if you know the meaning of the word ugly, Kipper, but that, to put it in a nutshell, is the way things have ganged. Chapter 16 Reaching the mainland some moments later, and accompanied by Bobby, squelching back to the house like a couple of Napoleons, squelching back from Moscow, we encountered Aunt Dahlia, who was wearing that hat of hers that looks like one of those baskets you carry fish in. She was messing about in the herbaceous border by the tennis lawn. She gaped at us dumbly for perhaps five seconds, then uttered an ejaculation, far from suitable to mixed company, which she had no doubt picked up from a fellow Nimrod in her hunting days. Having got this off her chest, she said, What's been going on in this joint? Wilbert Cream came by here just now, soaked to the eyebrows, and now you two appear, leaking at every seam. Have you been playing water polo with your clothes on? Not so much water polo, more seaside bathing bell stuff, I said. It's a long story, and one feels that the cagey thing for Kipper and me to do now is to nip along and get some dry clothes, and not to linger conferencing with you much. I added courteously, though we always enjoy your conversation. The extraordinary thing is that I saw Upjohn not long ago, and he was dry as a bone. How was that? Couldn't get him to play along with you? He had to go and talk to his lawyer on the phone, I said, and leaving Bobby to place the facts before her, we resumed our squelching. I was in my room, having shed the moistened outer crust, and substituted something a bit more sec in pale flannel, when there was a knock on the door. I flung by the gates, and found Bobby and Kipper on the threshold. The first thing I noticed about their demeanour was the strange absence of gloom, despondency, and what not. I mean, considering that it was a little more than a quarter of an hour since all our hopes and dreams had taken the knock, one would have expected their hearts to be bowed down with a weight of woe. But their whole aspect was one of bucket optimism. It occurred to me as a possible solution that, with that bulldog spirit of never admitting defeat, which has made Englishmen, and of course English women, what they are, they had decided to have another go along the same lines at some future date, and I asked if that was the case. The answer was in the negative, 
Kipper said no, there was no likelihood of getting up John down to the lake again. And Bobby said that even if they did, it wouldn't be any good because I was sure to mess things up once more. This stung me, I confess. How do you mean, mess things up? You'd be bound to trip over your flat feet and fall in as you did today. Pardon me, I said, preserving with an effort the polished suavity demanded from an English gentleman when chewing the rag with one of the other sex. You are talking through the back of your fat-headed little neck. I did not trip over my flat feet. I was hurled into the depths by an act of God. To wit, a totally unexpected dachshund getting between my legs. If you're going to blame anyone, blame that goof Phyllis for bringing Augustus there and calling him in his hearing a sweet pussykins. Naturally, it made him sore and disinclined to stand any lip from barking dogs. Yes, said Kipper, always the staunch pal. Was it Bertie's fault, Angel? Say what you will of dachshunds. Their peculiar shape makes them the easiest breed of dog to trip over in existence. I feel that Bertie emerged without a stain on his character. I don't, said Bobby. Still, it doesn't matter. No, it doesn't really matter, said Kipper. Because your aunt has suggested a scheme that's just as good as the Lanchester Simmons thing, if not better. She was telling Bobby about the time when Boko Fiddleworth was trying to ingratiate himself with your Uncle Percy, and you, very sportingly, offered to go and call your Uncle Percy a lot of offensive names, so that Boko, hovering outside the door, could come in and stick up for him, thus putting himself in solid with him. You probably remember the incident. I quivered. I remember the incident all right. She thinks the same treatment would work with Upjohn, and I'm sure she's right. You know how you feel when you suddenly discover you've a real friend, a fellow who thinks you're terrific and won't hear a word said against you? It touches you. If you had anything in the nature of a prejudice against the chap, you change your opinion of him. You feel you can't do anything to injure such a sterling bloke, and that's how Upjohn is going to feel about me, Bertie, when I come in and lend him my sympathy and support, as you stand there calling him all the names you can think of. You must have picked up a dozen from your aunt. She used to hunt, and if you hunt, you have to know all the names there are, because people are always riding over hounds and all that. Ask her to jot down a few of the best on a half a sheet of notepaper. He won't need that, said Bobby. He's probably got them all tucked away in his mind. Of course, learn them at her knee as a child. Well, that's the setup, Bertie. You wait your opportunity and corner up John somewhere and tower over him as he crouches in his chair and shake your finger in his face and abuse him roundly and when he's quailing beneath your scorn and wishing some friend in need would intervene and save him from that terrible ordeal I come in having heard all. Bobby suggests I knock you down but I don't think I could do that. The recollection of our ancient friendship would make me pull my punch. I shall simply rebuke you. Worst of all shall say I am shocked. Shocked and appalled. I cannot understand how you can talk like that to a man I have always respected and looked up to. A man in whose preparatory school I spent the happiest years of my life. You strangely forget yourself, Worcester. Upon which you slink out, bathed in shame and confusion. And Upjohn thanks me brokenly and says if there's anything he can do for me, I only have to name it. I still think you ought to knock him down. Having endeared myself to him thus... It's much more box office. Having endeared myself to him thus, I lead the conversation round to the libel suit. One good punch in the eye would do it. I say that I have seen the current issue of the Thursday Review, and I can quite understand him wanting to mullet the journal in substantial damages. But don't forget, Mr. Upjohn, 
I say that when a weekly paper loses a chunk of money, it has to retrench. And the way it retrenches is by getting rid of the more junior members of its staff. You wouldn't want me to lose my job now, would you, Mr. Upjohn? He starts and then says, are you on the staff of the Thursday Review? And I say, for the time being, yes. But if you bring that suit, I shall be selling pencils in the street. This is the crucial moment. Looking into his eyes, I can see he's thinking of that 5,000 quid. And for an instant, quite naturally, he hesitates. Then his better self prevails. His eyes soften. They fill with tears. He clasps my hand. He tells me he could use 5,000 quid as well as the next man, but no money in the world would make him dream of doing an injury to the fellow who championed him so stoutly against that louse Worcester. And the scene ends with our going off together to Swordfish's pantry for a drop of port, probably with our arms round each other's waists. And that night he writes a letter to his lawyer telling him to call the suit off. Any questions? Not from me. It isn't as if he could find out that it was you who wrote the review. It wasn't signed. I can't see a flaw in the scenario. He'll have to withdraw the suit. In common decency, one would think, the only thing that remains is to choose a time and place for Bertie to operate. No time like the present. But how do we locate Upjohn? He's in Mr. Travis' study. I saw him through the French window. Excellent. Then, Bertie, if you're ready... It will probably have been noticed that during these exchanges I had taken no part in the conversation. This was because I was fully occupied with envisaging the horror that lay before me. I knew that it did lie before me, of course, for where the ordinary man would have met the suggestion they had made with a firm nole prosequi, I was barred from doing this by the Code of the Worcesters, which, as is pretty generally known, renders it impossible for me to let a pal down. If the only way of saving a boyhood friend from having to sell pencils in the street, though I should have thought that blood oranges would have been a far more lucrative line was by wagging my finger in the face of Aubrey Upjohn and calling him names, that finger would have to be wagged and those names called. The ordeal would whiten my hair from the roots up and leave me a mere shell of my former self, but it was one I must go through. Mine not to reason why, as the fellow said. So I uttered a rather husky, right ho, and tried not to think of how Upjohn's face looked without its moustache. For what chilled the feet most was the mental picture of that bare upper lip which he had so often twitched at me in what I call the days of yore. Dimly, as we started off for the arena, I could hear Bobby saying my hero, and Kipper asking anxiously if I was in good voice. But it would have taken a fat lot more than my heroing and solicitude about my vocal cords to restore tone to Bertram's nervous system. I was, in short, feeling like an inexperienced novice going up against the heavyweight champion, When in due course I drew up to the study door and opened it and tottered in, I could not forget that an Aubrey Upjohn, who for years had been looking strong parents in the eye and making them wilt, and whose toughness was a byword in Bramley on Sea, was not a man lightly to wag a finger in the face of. Uncle Tom's study was a place I seldom entered during my visits to Brinkley Court, because when I did go there, he always grabbed me and started to talk about old silver, whereas if he caught me in the open, He often touched on other topics, and the way I looked at it was there was no sense in sticking one's neck out. It was more than a year since I had been inside this sanctum, and I had forgotten how extraordinary its interior was like that of Aubrey Upjohn's lair at Malvern House. Discovering this now, and seeing Aubrey Upjohn seated at the desk, as I had so often seen him sit on occasions when he had sent for me to discuss some recent departure of mine from the straight and narrow path, 
I found what little was left of my sang-froid expiring with a pop. And at the same time, I spotted the flaw in the scheme I had undertaken to sit in on. Viz, that you can't just charge into a room and start calling somebody names out of a blue sky, as it were. You have to lead up to things. Poor Pilar, in short, out of the essence. So I said, Oh, hello! Which seemed to me about as good a poor Pilar as you could have had by way of an opener. I should imagine that those statesmen of whom I was speaking always edge into their conferences, conducted in an atmosphere of the utmost cordiality in some such manner. Reading, I said. He lowered his book, one of Mark Cream's, I noticed, and flashed his upper lip at me. Your powers of observation have not let you astray, Worcester. I am reading. Interesting book? Very. I'm counting the minutes upon which I can resume its perusal undisturbed. I'm pretty quick, and I at once spotted that the atmosphere was not of the utmost cordiality. He hadn't spoken matily, and he wasn't eyeing me matily. His whole manner seemed to suggest that he felt that I was taking up space in the room which could have been better employed for other purposes. However, I persevered. I see you've shaved off your moustache. I have. You do not feel, I hope, that I pursued a mistaken course. Oh, no, rather not. I grew a moustache myself last year, but had to get rid of it. Indeed. Public sentiment was against it. I see. Well, I should be delighted to hear more of your reminiscences, Worcester, but at the moment I'm expecting a telephone call from my lawyer. I thought you'd had one. I beg your pardon. When you were down by the lake, didn't you go off to talk to him? I did, but when I reached the telephone, he had grown tired of waiting and had rung off. I should never have allowed Miss Wickham to take me away from the house. She wanted you to see the big fish. So I understood her to say. Talking of fish, you must have been surprised to find Kipper here. Kipper? Herring. Oh, Herring. He said in one spot of the almost total lack of animation in his voice. And conversation had started to flag when the door flew open and that goof Phyllis bounded in, full of girlish incitement. Oh, Daddy, she burbled. Are you busy? No, my dear. Can I speak to you about something? Certainly. Goodbye, Worcester. I saw what this meant. He didn't want me around. There was nothing for it but to ooze out through the French window. So I oozed, and had hardly gotten outside when Bobby sprang at me like a leopardess. What on earth are you fooling about like this for, Bertie? She stage-whispered. Oh, that rot about moustaches? I thought you'd be well into it by this time. I pointed out that as yet Aubrey Upjohn had not given me a cue. You and your cues. All right, me and my cues, but I've got to sort of leave the conversation in the right direction, haven't I? I'll see what Bertie means, darling, said Kipper. He wants a point d'appui. A what? said Bobby. A sort of jumping off place. The Beazle snorted. If you ask me, he's lost his nerve. I knew this would happen. The worm has got cold feet. I could have crushed her by drawing her attention to the fact that worms don't have feet, cold or piping hot, but I had no wish to bandy words. I must ask you, Kipper, I said with frigid dignity, to request your girlfriend to preserve the decencies of debate. My feet are not cold. I am as intrepid as a lion and only too anxious to get down to brass tacks. But just as I was working round to the res, Phyllis came in. She said she had something she wanted to speak to him about. 
Bobby snorted again, this time in a despairing sort of way. Oh, she'll be in there for hours. It's no good waiting. No, said Kipper. May as well call it off for the moment. We'll let you know time and place of the next fixture, Bertie. Oh, thanks, I said. And they drifted away. And about a couple of minutes later, as I stood there, brooding on Kipper's sad case, Aunt Dahlia came along. I was glad to see her. I thought she might possibly come across with aid and comfort. For though, like the female in the poem I was mentioning, she sometimes was inclined to be a toughish egg in hours of ease, she could generally be relied upon to be there with the soothing solace when one had anything wrong with one's brow. As she approached, I got the impression that her own brow had, for some reason, taken it on the chin. Quite a good deal of that upon which all the ends of the earth are come stuff, it seemed to me. Nor was I mistaken. Oh, Bertie, she said, heaving to beside me and waving a trowel in an overwrought manner. Do you know what? No, what? I'll tell you what, said the aged relative, rapping out a sharp monosyllable such as she might have uttered in her corn and pitchley days on observing a unit of the pack of hounds chasing a rabbit. That ass Phyllis has gone and got engaged to Wilbert Cream!